our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are God. God, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. God, I thank you that in this life that you have not forsaken us, you've not abandoned us, that you took on flesh and you came to save us. Lord Jesus, you came to satisfy God's wrath and to pay for our sin, our debt in full. And Lord, I do pray this morning that as we read your word, as we see this this new command that you have given us. Well, can you stir our hearts as we are just overwhelmed by the love of our Savior? Can you help us to feel the reality and the severity of our sin and the grace and the mercy that you have lavished on us? That when we look to the cross, we see your glory on full display. Lord, I know I can't do justice to what you say and what you've revealed to your word, but can you help me to articulate these truths in a way that we can understand? Can your spirit, in a way, open up our eyes, our minds, and convict us so that we may see, so that we will behold you and look to you? We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 13, uh, and we're going to start with verse 18 as we're continuing to walk through the gospel of John. And again, John is trying to show us is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he does it is we're finally at the part of our text where now he shows us how Jesus received glory from the Father. And so the ultimate reason what John is trying to accomplish is to invite us to believe whether it's believing for the first time or to believe where it's continued to believe so that you may have life in the name of Jesus. Now, as the hour has come for Jesus, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the reality of his death and also the pain of his departure. And what he is doing is he's ministering to them by helping them and giving them a deeper understanding and experience of the gospel. And last week, the way he did it is by washing their feet. And really what we see in the imagery of Jesus washing their feet, we really see a picture of the gospel where Jesus humbled himself and displayed the love of the Father and displayed his love towards them, washing them and making them clean. And then he calls them to to follow him and to walk as he walked, not so that they could be made clean, but rather because they are clean and they were made clean by the washing of Jesus. And today in our text, Jesus comes and he repeatedly warns about the betrayer is coming and the betrayer is going to be one of them. And despite the clear signs as which disciple it was, these disciples kind of seemed oblivious and in their minds thinking, who in the world among us would ever dare to betray Jesus? It seemed implausible. How could it be? Did he not choose them? And if he chose them, why would he choose a disciple knowing that disciple would ever betray him? And so this is what we're going to talk about. And we're going to see as Jesus reveals his betrayer, he's also preparing them for his departure. And what he does is he gives them an assignment to do while he is gone. So let's look at our text and first see how Jesus reveals the betrayer. And then we're going to answer the question, why would Jesus choose somebody who's going to betray him? And then we'll see what's happening at the cross, the ultimate purpose of his glory and the new assignment he gives for his disciples. Look at John 13 verse 18. He says this, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. 
So, so one of the questions I had, and maybe it's one of the questions you had, is that if Jesus chose all of his disciples, why in the world would he choose a disciple knowing that disciple is going to betray him? And so that's the question we raise, and yet Jesus gives us an answer in verse 18. He says, so that scripture must be fulfilled. In other words, what that means when Jesus says, so that Scripture must be fulfilled, it means that the choosing of Judas was not some oversight, an error, a moment of weakness. It means that Jesus wasn't some unfortunate victim of a friend that betrayed him, and he was caught of God wondering what in the world just happened, but rather, Jesus had a plan. Scripture must be fulfilled, which shows us one way or another, and I can't explain it fully, is that this betrayal of Judas had a redemptive purpose. And what Jesus is saying is, one of you are going to betray me. In other words, signifying Scripture must be fulfilled. This betrayal sounds bad, and you're going to feel sorry for me, but don't, because it has a redemptive purpose. But then he turns around and he says, the reason I'm telling you these things Look at verse 19. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. In other words, the reason why Jesus is telling his disciples, one of you are going to betray me, is to strengthen their faith, is for them to recognize that Jesus is he. In other words, that he is divine, that he truly is the Messiah, that he truly is the Son of God. Now, Let's stop here and just imagine for a little bit here with me. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You can imagine the disciples were probably disoriented by the illusion of Jesus' suffering and death. Now he's talking about somebody that's going to betray him, and that betrayal was one of them. And they're probably thinking, well, maybe it's not one of the immediate 12. Maybe it's like kind of like one of the outside people that still considered his disciples. Or maybe they're thinking, okay, he's going to be betrayed, but it's not going to lead to that big of a deal. Maybe it won't hurt him too much because, again, who is Jesus? Jesus is their master. He could walk on water. He could calm the storm. He could raise the dead. He could feed the poor. He can heal the sick. If he can do all of these things, certainly he can overcome a betrayal. So no matter what is thrown at him, surely Jesus, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God, a betrayal, little suffering will not overcome him. And then you can imagine as we fast forward in the life of Jesus after Jesus' betrayal that led to his arrest and his trial and his execution, you can imagine how this must have rocked the disciples' faith. Because they believe clearly this must be the one that's sent from God. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And now he was betrayed by one of them. Now he was put on trial. Now he is executed. Can he be the Son of God? Can he be the Messiah? Can he be God? And what Jesus is saying is, the reason I'm telling you ahead of time is so that when all of this occurs and your faith will be rocked and you will doubt who I am, you would think back and you would remember, oh, wait a second. Jesus did talk about his betrayal. Jesus did talk about his death. Jesus did talk about his resurrection. This can be no ordinary man. At most, at minimum, he must be a prophet because the valid test of a prophet is whatever he prophesies comes to pass. But then he has to also be so much more because any man who can predict his own betrayal, his own death, and his own resurrection and actually pull it off could be no other than the Son of God, the Messiah. And so what Jesus is is preparing them, he's trying to strengthen their faith, knowing their faith is going to be rock. Look, Look at verse 21 as Jesus reveals who this betrayer is. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. 
One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, from the beginning, Jesus knew what, Jesus would, what Judas would do. And yet, as the time came closer, because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he felt anguish. He was overwhelmed by the reality of what is going to take place. Now, in the beginning, you can imagine Jesus just talking and the disciples kind of just blowing off Jesus like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, all of a sudden, this anguish became visible. And you can just imagine all of the energy in the room just gets sucked out. Now, this moment is serious. Something bad is happening. And what Jesus is talking about is real because we can see it on his face. And there is so much tense, so much awkward silence that nobody knows what to do. And yet, in their back of their mind, everybody is curious, who in the world could that be? And so here's, as Jesus is showing anguish, and it's visible for all the disciples to see simultaneously, the one who is planning to betray Jesus is coming to the reality that either he is going to be exposed. So now he has two options. Option number one, make it a quick one. Do the wicked plan that execute the wicked plot that he has planned, or renounce his evil and beg for forgiveness. And as shocked and as stunned as the silence continues, Peter, who always would normally speak out, doesn't, but rather he motions to the one, the beloved disciple, which we know as John, is go ahead and ask Jesus in private who it is. And look, let, let's see what happens as he asks Jesus. And let's look at the answer in verse 26. Jesus replied, He is the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told them, What you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. So as John is leaning into Jesus, asking who it is, it seems like from this text what we can gather is that this this answer kind of was in quiet tones. In other words, not everybody heard it. And the reason I say that, because if you look at verse 29, when Judas left, none of the disciples really knew why he left. They just assumed because he handled the money, he was getting more food or maybe giving food to the poor or whatever it looks like. But they did not know the reason why Judas left. Now, now here's what's kind of happening because it's kind of a weird way, especially in our culture, to reveal our betrayer by giving them a piece of bread. But, but in this culture, traditionally, the host of feast, and this role was fulfilled by Jesus, what he, the host of feast would normally do is take a, a piece of bread or take a piece of tasty meat and dip it in a common bowl, and a show of honor to a guest is to give them that piece of bread. And so if you receive that piece of bread in that culture, that means you are more honored than all the other guests. And the fact that Jesus so easily could pass this piece of bread on to Judas means that Judas was very close by to Jesus. And the closer you sit to the host, the more you are honored as a guest. So Judas, maybe we can assume he's sitting on the left hand and John is sitting on the right hand of Jesus, which means Judas is honored as a guest. And he gives them this piece of bread. And the Bible tells us, and it's kind of a, a strange verse, is that after he ate this piece of bread, Satan entered him. It's like, well, what in the world does that mean? 
Well, you have some people that believe that this piece of bread was cursed and the second he ate at this piece of cursed bread, this mystical bread kind of turned into something and evil entered him and that's how Satan came. But I don't think this is really what's going on. And the reason why I say that is that when we look at John chapter 13, again, when you study the word of God, if you don't really understand what's going on in the immediate text, when you zoom in, the best way to handle the text is to zoom out, okay? So we don't really understand, what does this mean, this piece of bread and Satan entering into it? Was this bread mystical? Well, we don't know yet. So, so let's zoom out. As we zoom out, let, let's look at John chapter 13, verse 1. What, what does it say in John 13, verse 1? It said that before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And then what does it say? What's his attitude towards his disciples? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what does it tell us about, about Jesus? Jesus loved them to the end. And in that culture, by giving somebody a piece of bread, especially at a supper, is a gesture of love and affection. It is a gesture of I am honoring you as my guest. And really what's happening here is Jesus is showing Judas a gesture of love, a gesture of honor. And yet as he does it to Judas, that gesture led Judas to a deeper surrender to the power of darkness. In other words, instead of him being broken by his sin that leads him to repentance, in a sense, it hardened his heart and then pushed him further into darkness. And really what we see here is a picture of the gospel. Like, like think with me for a little bit. Well, what does Jesus do? In a loving gesture, he offers himself to Judas who is wicked and undeserving of it. And in the offering of himself, all that Judas had to do is to receive it. And by receiving Jesus, there is forgiveness. And by rejecting Jesus, there is condemnation. And one of the principles we have to understand about both the Bible and the gospel is there's no neutral stance. The gospel either convicts you of sin that leads you to repentance or it even hardens your heart that leads you to further judgment and condemnation. And maybe this analogy will maybe help you understand this. The same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. The very same thing. The word of God is a double-edged sword. It either convicts you that leads to repentance or it condemns, judges you that leads to condemnation. Which means there's no neutral stance when it comes to the gospel. One of the worst hobbies you could ever do is just listen to the gospel and read the Bible for fun, having no intentions of submitting to it. Because you know what it's doing to you? It's hardening your heart. For you to constantly sit under the preaching of the word and having no desire to submit your life to it, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. Condemnation is waiting for you. And what we see in this text with Judas is what's happening. Because for many of us, you would think if Jesus would just offer himself to Judas, Judas would repent. No, the opposite. Because that's, in a sense, what the gospel does. It either convicts that leads to repentance or it judges you that leads to condemnation. And for Judas... It judged him. It condemned him. And I find it very interesting that as he left, look at the last part of verse, uh, verse 30. After he left, w w what does John describe us? He says, after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was, it was night. And maybe John is playing this wordplay. Maybe it's night or he's reminding us Judas is walking and total darkness, utter darkness. So after Judas left, his heart is hardened, determined to betray Jesus, rejecting Jesus who offered himself to him. 
Judas leaves. And now Jesus starts his final discourse to the disciples. Verse 31 says this. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, I don't know if you've picked it up, but verse 31 and verse 32 is a mouthful. You're probably thinking, like, what in the world does Jesus mean here? What's happening is with Judas's departure, now it puts into motion Jesus's betrayal that will lead to his arrest, that will lead to his trial, and that will lead to his execution. And what Jesus is saying in verses 31 and verse 32, as troubling and as dark as that moment was, Jesus also makes it clear that now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Jesus wanted them to know that what was about to be what happened would be the darkest moment at the same time the most glorious moment in human history. Why? Because in the cross of Christ, in his humiliation, in the darkest hour of humanity, the same glory of God will be displayed for all to see. And so when you look at verse 31 and verse 32, what Jesus really is showing us is how the cross is going to lead to the glory of God being displayed and the glory of the Son. And so if you're taking notes, two, two truths that's easy for us to understand that really verse 31 and 32 is pointing to when it comes to God's glory. is when we look at the cross and we see God's glory on display, the first truth is this. If you want to know who God is, look to Christ. If you want to know who God is, look to Christ. This is why Jesus says, now is the time for the Son to be glorified and God to be glorified in the Son. In other words, what the Bible teaches us and what Jesus is teaching us here is if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who he is, look to Christ. And throughout generations, everybody has wondered, who in the world is God? Well, Jesus is the answer. The Apostle Paul even tells us in Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1 verse, 13, uh, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God and the exact expression of his nature. In other words, the reality of the truth of God's glory on display, if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus Christ. For as the Son is glorified, so the Father is glorified in His Son. And as the Son is glorified, as the Father is glorified, so the Son is glorified in the Father. The second truth is this. If you want to know the heart of God, look to the cross. If you want to know the heart of God, look to the cross. What's happening at the cross? On one hand, the most wickedest, vilest action, the lowliest, darkest moment in human history. And on the other hand, the greatest glory of God ever displayed. When God displays his glory, what that means is God, in a sense, is displaying who he is. And the cross puts the glorious display of God for all to see because the cross reveals to us God's perfect plan in reversing the curse of sin it reveals to us God's hatred towards sin God's judgment towards sin it also reveals to us God's righteousness but then also his love and his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness towards unfaithful people. And I think this could be a sermon of itself, and I don't want to overwhelm you, but just think about all that's being displayed on the cross. 
God's wrath is being poured out on his son as he shows us his righteous judgment towards sin. His hatred towards sin. And also displaying his love for people that he would allow a substitute to die in the place of sinners. And that substitute wasn't some random substitute. That substitute was his only son. Displaying his love for and his mercy and his grace for unworthy, wicked, betrayful people who eventually deny him too. His glory is on display at the cross. And as Jesus is saying this in verse 33, you, you can, as he shows us how, look, this is going to be a dark moment, but this is also going to be an epic moment of God's glory being on display because now you will truly see that I am the Son of God as I reveal to you who God is and as I reveal to his glory because on the cross, his glory will be fully displayed for all to see. But then you see in verse 33, he calls them little children. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And you can sense the agony and the darkness that is coming and what Jesus is really trying to do is he's trying to prepare them for what's about to happen as dark and as glorious at the same time as he is leaving them he's trying to tell them this is what I want you to do here is your new assignment while I am gone look look at verse 33 34 sorry it says this I give you a new command Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So having announced his departure, what do they do when he's gone? Jesus says, here's your assignment. While I'm gone, this is what I want you to do. A new commandment I give you, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, when we think about this new command, this new command is as simple enough that a child could memorize it. What's the new command God gave us? Love one another as Jesus has loved us. By this, the world will know that we're his disciples by the way we love one another. It is simple that a child could memorize it, and yet it's so profound that even the most mature believer is embarrassed by how poorly we display this command and live out this command to one another. Now, let's talk about the aspect of this being new. Because... If you've read the Bible a little bit, you're thinking, well, how is this new? Because doesn't the Bible tell us that we ought to love one another? What makes this new? Because if you look at the Old Testament, we see under the Mosaic Law where where Moses tells the people of God in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 that he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then in Leviticus 19, verse 18, he he tells them, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in the Old Testament, what what does God tell his people to do? Love God, love people. Then when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he says this command that all the prophets and the law hangs on these two commandments. So how can this be now a new command? Well, two reasons why this is a new command, if you're taking notes, is this. There is a new motive. There's a new motive. Think about this command. Let's look at this command again, this new command. Look at the new motive. Love one another. What's your motivation? Just as I have loved you. The Old Testament said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
But what Jesus is saying is something different. He says, no, I want you to love your neighbor, love one another, not like you love yourself, but as I have loved you. In other words, this new commandment can only be understood in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What motivates us to love one another is the great love that Jesus has displayed for us. And how did he display this great love for us? By dying on the cross for our sins. Sacrificing, laying down his life for us. See, what motivates us us to love one another is not the love I have for myself, but the love that Christ has for me. And it is in light of the finished work of Christ. And what helps me to love one another is that the more I realize the love that the Savior has for me, the more I recognize the depths and the depravity of my sin, the more I recognize the love the Savior has for me, and the more I appreciate the love the Savior has for me, the more now I am motivated to love one another. And this is why John can say in 1 John 4, 19, he reminds us that we love because he has loved us first. So what's your motivation of loving one another? Because Christ has loved you. Now, can we be honest here? Anybody struggle with loving one another? Why? Let's get to the heart of this. Why do you think we struggle to love one another? I think two reasons. There could be maybe three, but I was only smart enough to come up with two. Okay, if you have a third one, maybe after the service you can tell me. Here, here's the first reason why we struggle to love one another. The first reason is because we struggle to believe that God truly loves us. This is why we can't really love one another. We struggle to believe that God really loves us. We're sometimes so overcome by our unworthiness and by our worth that we think about ourselves. We can say, God can love everybody else except me. I'm not worthy of him loving me. And what you're doing is you are believing a lie. How did God display his love for you? He didn't just simply tell you, hey, I love you. But what did he do? He laid down his life for you. That's the very first reason. So for some of you, if you struggle to love one another, maybe it's because you have a hard time to believe that God loves you. And what is the answer to in your fight against this lie? Look to the cross. Because at the cross where God displayed his love for you. Here's the second reason is we fail to appreciate the love of the Savior. We fail to appreciate the love of the Savior. So maybe you believe that God loves you, but maybe God's love for you is not that big of a deal. And here is the lie that we believe. When we fail to grasp the significance, the beauty, the extravagant love that God has for us. It starts with us to believe that our sin is no big deal. When sin is not a big deal anymore, when sin in our culture is simply a human action, a mistake, a boo-boo that everybody does, what Jesus did for us is not that big of a deal. You see, the, the reason why every time we gather, part of our worship, we incorporate confession and assurance. And I know for some of you that's your favorite part, and for some of you that is your most hated part. But the reason why we're putting it in our services is not to beat a dead horse, but to constantly remind you that look to the cross, understand the reality and the depths of your sin because when you start to understand that, only then can you start to appreciate the love the Savior has for you because the greater the sin, 
the greater the Savior and the grace. This is what Jesus means, that those who have been forgiven much love much. It's not because on paper they've sinned way more than anybody else, but they are fully understanding the reality and the severity and their depths of their sin, that it is in our, in our confession, it is a betrayal, it is treason against a holy God. And it's only when you start to understand that now will you start to see, oh my, what Jesus did for me is a big deal. And so how do you fight the lie against your sin not being a big deal? What do you look to? You look to the cross again. Because at the cross, you see God's hatred towards sin as his wrath is being poured out on the one who knew no sin and became sin on your behalf and took all of your sins upon himself. That is the big deal of sin. And yet the Savior would die for traitors and deniers like me and like you. So why is this a new command? Because there's now there's a new motivation. My love for me is not my motivation to love you. Because quite frankly, at times, I don't love myself. But what motivates me to love you is the love the Savior has for me. That he would die for a wretched sinner like me. The, the second reason this is a, a, a new command. Not only is there a new motive, but there's also now a new result. There is a new result. And, and, and think about this. What is the new result when we love one another? What does verse 35 say? It says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a new result. The mark of a Christian is the love they have for one another. Now, when these words were spoken, everybody knew who were Jesus' disciples. They were the ones who followed Jesus. They were the ones who were with Jesus. But when Jesus went back to the Father and that generation passed away, the mark that people knew that these were disciples of Jesus was because of the love they had for one another. They loved one another as Jesus loved them. So if that is the result, then is it, is it safe for us to conclude with these words that where love is absent among one another, there Jesus' love is absent? Now, I would love to be tempted to point us to the Christians out there and how awful they are in loving one another, but they're not out there, and I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to you here. How are you loving one another? Maybe an, a, another way of saying, how are you laying your life down for one another? How are you laying some of your preferences and some of your prides and some of the things that are dear to you, you lay it down. Why? Because you love one another. Because what did Christ do for you? He laid down his life for you. What's motivating you to love one another? Now, now as we move on, we're, we're almost done here. Just like little kids, you, you give them assignment of what to do when you're gone. They care more about where you're going than the actual assignment. And what do the disciples do? The disciples care more about where is he going than the actual assignment. I don't even know if they've heard the assignment. If they, all they could think in the back of their minds is, where in the world is Jesus going? And this is what we see in verse 36. It says, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. And again, it seemed like Peter was more curious about where Jesus was going 
than listening to the assignment that Jesus is giving him. In other words, what Peter was unwilling to do, he was unwilling to wait. He was unwilling to be patient and execute what Jesus told him to do, but rather, because he was so distracted, he allowed pride to blind him to the weakness of his sins. Even to the point that he thinks that the most heinous of sins he will never commit, that he would gladly lay down his life. And I think there's something small for us to learn from this. Like one of the things that Peter is going to learn is that he is not very strong, that he is weak. And for many of us, let me in the most loving and gracious way tell you, and the reason I'm telling you is not to be mean, but it's just the most loving thing. You are not very strong. The sin that you think you will never commit, you will commit. You do not have the power to resist temptation on your own. What happens when, with pride causes the downfall. And yet Jesus, he's patient with Peter. In a sense, he predicts that Peter is going to fall. But then also in a sense, he also tells Peter, he restores Peter in a sense, predicting his restoration that no, you won't follow me now, but you will follow me later. In other words... I am going to glory through the ways of death, and I'll be the sacrificial lamb, so you can't follow me in that because I'm the only one that can be the sacrificial lamb. However, later you will walk into glory after you follow me on the road of suffering. How great is it that our Savior is so patient with us in our stubbornness and in our pride that even as he predicts our denial and our betrayal. In a sense, he also predicts our restoration. As Jesus knew what Peter was going to do, who did Jesus die for? He died for Peter. As Jesus knows what you're going to do, who did he die for? Died for you. He laid down his life for you. All because he loves you and all for the glory of God. And so as as we wrap it up, as we get back to the glory, we see the darkest hour of Jesus is also the glory of God is on display. And so the question is, how do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? I'm not going to give you the catechism question. We glorify God by loving him, trusting him, obeying his wills, laws, and commands. And what does it command us to do? Love one another as I have loved you. By that, God will be glorified because the world will see that you are my disciples. And this is how he prepares them for this dark hour. And this is how he prepares us, even for us, as we're walking and we feel like darkness is closing in. What do we do? We glorify God by loving one another. Because when we love one another, we're showing the world that we are his disciples. And by loving one another, we're constantly being reminded of the love the Savior has for us. And how are we constantly reminded the love the Savior has for us? We look to the cross of Christ, where the glory of God is on display. Let me pray, uh, pray for us, and then we get to sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, I, I thank you. Lord, for your mercy and for your grace, Lord, I, I do pray, can you forgive us for our lack of love for one another? 
God, can you forgive us in our unbelief where we don't believe that you love us or where we don't think your love is that spectacular? Forgive us that we've taken our eyes off of the cross and we've put our eyes on ourselves. Lord, forgive us in our ignorance and in our pride that we think we're strong and that we can overcome any temptation. And thank you that you are so patient with us. Knowing our failures, knowing all of our sin, you died for us. And Lord, you, you know everybody in this room. You know what they're thinking right now. Lord, those you know who have a hard time to believe that you love them. And in that moment, Lord, can you help them to look to the cross where you displayed your love for them and laid down your life for them? You shed your blood for them. You exchanged their unrighteousness for your righteousness. Can your spirit just open up their eyes and their minds and their hearts to the reality of the love that you have for them? And Lord, you know those who just don't think your love is that big of a deal because they haven't felt the weight of their sins. Well, can you crush them by the weight of their sins? Can you help them feel the weight? Can you help them to understand the reality? Can you open up their eyes to the depths of their sin and the holiness of you so that they may understand the incredible love that you have for them? And Lord, for some of us that are distracted, we think we're strong, but we're really weak. We're distracted by the worries of this world. Can you help us to to fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, to look to the cross where all of our sins have been paid for. As we continue to pray, as we get ready to sit at the table, in our struggle with loving one another, both answers is look to the cross. And so I just want you to take a moment, just meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ where he took all of your sins and faced God's wrath on your behalf. And he did it not while you were good, but while you were at your very worst. More than likely, you were part of the crowd that shouted, crucify, crucify, crucify. You were unworthy. God belittling, God hatred, betraying, wicked person. And despite that, Jesus took all of your sins upon himself. Satisfied God's wrath, atoned for your sins, exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness. What incredible love. And as we get ready to hand out these elements, what do these elements remind us? They're visible. They're physical, something we can taste, something that we can smell, something that we can look. And what it does, it reminds us of the cross of Jesus Christ. The love he showed us by giving us his body, shedding his precious blood that would cover all of our sins once and for all. The just dying for the unjust the righteous dying for the unrighteous. And the reality of the gospel is this. He lived a perfect life you could not live, and he died the death you were supposed to die. Why? First, to display God's glory, and second, to display his love for you. And the invitation is by faith. Receive it. Thank you. Thank the Lord for it. Confess your sins. Recognize your need for a Savior.
look to him and cling to him, believing that what he's done for you is sufficient. I'm reminded of of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, where Paul says this, Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Ryan, in First John somewhere, I, I couldn't remember the reference, how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. How did re- Jesus, who was rich, become poor so that by his poverty we can become rich? How was the love of the Father that he's lavished on us that we should be called children of God? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. The body that was given to us, we eat it in remembrance of it. The blood that was shed for us, we drink it in remembrance of it. Can you just take a moment as you're praying, just thank the Lord? for his mercy, for his grace in your life. Thank the Lord for this great exchange that has taken place. Your poverty for his riches and his riches for your poverty. Can you thank the Lord for the love that he's lavished on you that you should be called children of God, and that is who you are. Can you thank the Lord that this is love, not that you first loved him, but that he loved you? Oh, the initiating love of the Lord by laying his life down for us unworthy sinners. May we be in awe of his love. And may his love for us be the motivator for why we love one another. And by loving one another, may we display his glory for the world to see. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Savior?